Hello and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. My name is Jason Winsunas, Senior Editor at the EIU, and I'll be your host for this episode, which is the final one for 2020. And for a forward-looking discussion, we are very pleased to have The Economist's Deputy Editor, Tom Standage, with us today to talk about the world in 2021. At The Economist newspaper, the Department of Futurology gets together each year to work out what the year ahead likely has in store for the world. This year, Tom is leading that effort. He has been at the newspaper for the entire century so far and authored a few books along the way. I highly recommend his A History of the World in Six Glasses as a great narrative that connects familiar parts of history with much less visible and understood ones, all of which makes him an ideal person to head this predictive project. So welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast, Tom. Hello, it's good to be here. Now, how many years has The Economist been putting together the world in? This is the 35th year that we have made uh, our annual, which is called The World In, with the you know the number of the following year. So the one that's just come out is The World In 2021, and it's published every November. And it involves bringing together both journalists within The Economist and the EIU, but also uh, outside experts in the worlds of politics and business and so on, to give their perspective on what's going to happen in the year ahead. And so tell me about the the, the process of what was most challenging this year. Well, obviously, this year was uh, was tricky because there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. So in 2021, you can see you've got the sort of convergence of uncertainty over vaccines and the medical situation around the pandemic. You've got uncertainty around what that means for economic recovery. And then you've also got this changing of the guard in geopolitics. You've got you know new leader in the US, a new-ish prime minister in Japan, and you've got a new uh, German chancellor due by the end of 2021. So uh, you've got these sort of three sources of, of uncertainty certainty that are all in some ways interconnected and that makes predicting things particularly difficult um, and it makes it even harder given that uh, we actually start working on the world in in may every year um, traditionally there's a large tea that is held in the uh, offices of the economist and everyone gathers around the table and we have tea and and, and sort of cream buns and all this sort of thing um, and um, and we start to sort of think about what do we think the themes are that we've identified that will will be sort of developing and uh, and and growing in 2021 that we want to uh, to highlight. So we come up with an initial list then, and then we refine that list throughout the rest of the year. And then we actually make people commit themselves to what they're going to write about in September. Uh, and then we start assembling it all in October and it's, it's published in November. So that's the usual cycle. And obviously in 2020, we've had to do all of this remotely. We haven't been able to gather around a big, um, a big table for tea. And then the production team um, and the editorial team, uh, there's quite a small group of us. It's sort of only, only eight or nine people who who work on this we traditionally have three dim sum lunches in chinatown in london one at the beginning of the production process one in the middle and one at the end and we've all very much missed uh, those uh, occasions as well um so there is very much a sort of a well-established routine for producing this annual and we've had to improvise around that and find ways to do it differently we hope that um that for next year's edition, The World in 2022, which we'll start working on in May 2021, we hope that we'll be back around our usual tables, both to have tea, to produce the, the magazine, and also to have our dim sum in um, uh, the end of 2021. Yeah, I hope so too. So the first two on your list, Tom, are the uh, pandemic, either from a uh, vaccine perspective or from a recovery perspective. 
Trump said the U.S. would have a vaccine before Election Day. That didn't really come to pass exactly, but uh, now we do have a few that have been announced, and it's still not clear when the general populace will get them. And I realize this might have been the uh, toughest one to call when you had to make this list uh, back in October. But what's your sense uh, since making the list? Uh, is 2021 still going to be the year of the vaccine? Will it take the whole year for it to deploy? Well, the first thing to say is that I don't think there was ever a prospect of a vaccine arriving before the US election. So that was simply Trump talking nonsense, as usual. Um, we knew all along that the uh, the phase three trials for those vaccines, which had begun in the summer, were going to take a certain amount of time. Um, uh, they were going to have to register a certain number of cases. Um, and then once that had happened, we were going to get the first efficacy data. And then once that had happened, you would be able to put those uh, vaccines forward for emergency authorization, which is not the kind of standard approval that you have of a new drug. It's a, a special sort of fast tracked approval uh, for emergency use. And we expect the vaccines to go through emergency authorization and then sort of formal approval. But emergency authorization means you can start using them in, you know, frontline health workers and uh, and so on. And in fact, you know, the, U the UK has just just approved, um, so it's just announced emergency authorization for uh, for one of the vaccines. Um, and so there are going to be uh, people receiving uh, shots before the end of the year. And um, there aren't going to be very large numbers of them. The other thing is that these vaccines uh, tend to involve two injections, uh, two or three weeks apart, or possibly four weeks apart in one of them, actually. Um, so that means we're going to have people who get the first shot before the end of the year and the second shot at the beginning of next year. Um, so uh, the vaccines are here. Uh, but we now face the challenge, not of the scientific problem of developing them, uh, but the logistical problem of distributing them. And um, that is going to be the story of 2021, that we will have the scientific knowledge that we need, but will we actually have the vaccines in quantity? Will we be able to get them to where we want them, keep them cold, get them into people's arms? Will we have enough glass? Will we have enough needles? Will we have enough people? And then you've got the statistical problem of, um, you know, the Pfizer vaccine, for example, comes in batches of 975 doses. So um, when you open it, you've got to use all those doses basically right away um you can you you know you have to keep it at minus 70 or below uh if once you've opened it you you uh you have to use them in the, in the space of a few days um and then you have to gather those 975 people again three weeks later to give them the second shot so we're in a different world now and it's a it's a logistical um sort of deployment challenge and what we've seen during 2020 with things like testing and and tracing and so forth is that some company sorry some countries uh some parts of the world have been better at this than others some have been more organized some have had health services that are structured in a way that can cope with these sorts of demands more than others some have had stronger political leadership and so on and i think we're going to see a lot of that sort of variation in 2021 as well some countries are just going to be better organized when it comes to getting the vaccine to their populace uh, than others and um, and so we're going to see presumably a lot of politicization around those arguments who gets vaccines first both within countries and between countries and so on so yes vaccines are coming in 2021 the other thing you asked was will everyone get it by the end of 2021 and the answer to that is a very straightforward no um, there isn't going to be enough vaccine production in the world to vaccinate everyone on earth just mathematically until i think the serum institute says 2023 to 2024 um 
But that's not the end of the world, because actually you can suppress the virus very effectively if you start with uh, the frontline health workers, with the most vulnerable populations. There's then a bit of a debate about who you vaccinate next. Do you vaccinate the people at most risk or do you vaccinate the people who are actually spreading the virus the most? So you know, do you, do you vaccinate the students? Um, because although they're younger and at less risk, they are actually, you know, they're spreading it a lot because they're mixing. Um so there's a there's a debate to be had about that too, um, but I I would have thought that there will be reasonably um, you know widespread uh, vaccination by the end of the year. Um, reasonably widespread possibly means less than 50% of the population in a lot of rich countries. Um, in developing countries, it will take longer. Um, but we have seen that the impact of the pandemic has been particularly concentrated in rich countries, chiefly because they have older populations. And this is a, a disease that primarily kills older people. In terms of the, the developing versus developed countries, are there ways that that you've heard of that people are trying to ensure that the vulnerable populations in in developing countries, a lot of which you know are still here in Asia, will have access to vaccines? And are there any worries about, say, uh, U.S.-China tensions getting in the way of that? I don't think it's a U.S.-China um, issue. Um, these vaccines, I mean, China has its own vaccine, and it is um, sharing that with its with its allies and it's talking about you know using using it as part of vaccine diplomacy with members of the Belt and Road Initiative um, and other countries as well Brazil for example so um, and one of the things that's coming up in 2021 is the big summit between African nations and and China which happens every few years and there's definitely going to be a lot of talk of vaccines and preferential access to vaccines there um, but the main thing that is trying to ensure that access to vaccines is fair is the COVAX initiative and this is organized by the UN and other people uh, and in the world in 2021 we have a piece by Seth Berkeley one of the prime movers behind it of the Gavi the vaccine alliance um, and essentially that is a system where 180 nations or so and China has just joined it was relatively latecomer I don't think um, I think the US will join under Joe Biden but Trump had taken a very much sort of you know America first position on this um, we're going to look after our people and, and the rest of the world can go to hell um, but the, essentially the model is that rich countries put money into a pot which is used to buy vaccines for poorer countries to ensure that there is a minimum level at least of coverage in in those poorer countries and the specific goal that COVAX has is three percent coverage um, across all member countries so even in the poorest countries and that means you can do the health workers and you can start on the most vulnerable and they're aiming for 20 percent coverage by the end of 2021 and that would allow you to cover um, you know the elderly and the most vulnerable um, in in many countries you wouldn't quite get all of them I don't think but um, but that's the sort of thing that they're they're aiming for um, and I think we might get there are several richer countries you know the US Britain Australia a couple of other um, European countries that have placed these very large speculative orders for vaccines so Britain Britain has ordered 400 million vaccine doses uh, which is more than enough for a population of you know 65 million or so um, and it looks like most of the vaccines that have been ordered are going to work so there's going to be an oversupply of vaccine in some country and that in some countries that may mean that those countries can afford to give some doses to other countries or or whatever so we're going to see variations you know within countries and between countries about who gets what um, but there are these initiatives to try and make sure that it's it's fair and the reason for that is that this is a this is a problem and it, in this respect it's like climate change you know no one is safe until everyone is safe there's it's no good for a few rich countries to inoculate their populations if there are still reservoirs 
SARS of the of the virus elsewhere, um, because you know that that virus can still mutate and can still cause problems. And so this really does have to be something that you know the whole world acts together to suppress. So assuming that 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 does happen and we do come together, um, that brings us to the recovery part. Are there are parts of the world that have already gotten better, you know, China most notably, but uh, there's other parts such as the UK and the US where you and I each hail from that seem to be going the other way. You know, has there been any recent developments that had an effect on, on the earlier prognosis we had about recoveries? Well, our economics editor, Henry Kerr, I was talking to him about this uh, a few days ago. He said that actually looking back on how well economic forecasters did in 2020. The mistake they made, he said, was they underestimated the speed of the rebound in 2020. So when restrictions came off after the first round of lockdowns, um, economies bounced back very quickly, uh, more quickly than um, than many people had expected. Since then, clearly, many countries have gone into a second wave of lockdowns and there's this big um, second or third wave, depending on what you call it. Um, whereas China's economy clearly has bounced back very quickly. And there's an astonishing statistic in the world in 2021, um, which is that China's nominal GDP by the end of 2021 looks like it's going to reach the level that had been predicted for it in 2019. Um, In other words, when people in 2019 were making forecasts about China's GDP in 2021, they came up with a number and it's going to reach that number. So it will be as if the pandemic had never happened, at least in terms of nominal GDP. Now, in fact, you know, the the Chinese economy has, the structure of it has changed in result, as a result of this because it's become rather like it was five years ago. It's become sort of less reliant on consumer spending and more on, on government investment and so on. But just in terms of the overall number, um, China really has had a V-shaped recovery. And because it had the pandemic first and earliest and squelched it very early on, its factories were all reopening just as the rest of the world went into lockdown, needed PPE, large screens, webcams, all sorts of other things that are made in China. Um, so, you know, it's hardly surprising that that, that China has, has done well out of this. That is very much the exception. There aren't many other countries that have bounced back quickly. There are quite a few in Asia. But um, if you look at the world's leading economies, um, you know, many of them are in a, in a bad way and face a very bumpy ride in the next few months because these lockdowns and the sort of patchiness of the of the recovery it's limited to some when it does happen it's limited to some sectors not others you know uh, tourism uh, accommodation uh, those sorts of industries very hard hit other things bounce back much more quickly the tech industry is doing great um, so it's very very uneven and that's what makes it so difficult to forecast uh, and of course it also depends on the uh, the competence with which the vaccine is rolled out so you have this really um, difficult combination of uncertainty around the vaccine and then economic uncertainty and they sort of interact with each other so we will see recovery in 2021 but it's going to be a bumpy ride as it is with the deployment of the vaccine so with that faster than expected recovery this particularly for china's economy where, where does it go in 2021 will the will the ccp's new uh, guidelines on private sector guidance have any major effects do you think uh, and, and what those might be well, I'm not an expert on those new guidelines, but um, what I understand is that what what Henry was saying to me about you know one of the factors that uh, helped China recover so quickly is the extent to which the government you know intervenes in the economy. So the government can order banks to lend in China, and it can also order local governments to spend and invest and uh, and you know so you know borrow money from that bank and 
do this infrastructure project over here and that will create jobs and and you know keep the economy going that's the sort of thing that china because of the you know centralized authoritarian nature of its economy can do which most other countries can't um and so you know that's a that's a great advantage in a situation like this but um uh you know that means that the sorts of recovery that we've seen in china are it's it's much more difficult for other countries to do the same sort of thing so now that we uh, do have a, a us president decided is it possible now that that will result in less world disorder or was there much more to that than just trump so the biggest story in the world before the pandemic broke out was yes what we have been calling the new world disorder um and essentially it was the crumbling of the rules-based post-war international order and that took many forms um one of them for example was that globalization went into reverse after the global financial crisis so by several measures such as you know fdi and and uh, you know overall levels of trade um and so on um globalization's actually been flat or declining uh, for the past decade um another factor was that china was building its own sort of shadow institutions things like the belt and road institute uh, so belt and road initiative which you can see as a sort of shadow wto um a, a large trading organization that china would would make the rules for and it's also you know been making noises about setting up its own um yuan denominated payment system so it's not reliant on swift which is controlled by america and so on so there was those sorts of things and then of course donald trump showed up and really you know took a wrecking ball to quite a lot of the global institutions but he was in some respects accelerating a process that was already underway that a lot of those post-war institutions were, were showing their age so he then paralyzed the wto obviously pulled the us out of the paris climate agreement the tpp uh, the iran nuclear deal the open skies agreement um, and so on and so on and you know the who i mean the list goes on so um that has led to and then he started these trade wars not just with china but also with his allies with you know with canada with the eu and so on um so that has led to this extraordinary period of stability and now that we have a um you know a new president uh, in coming in in the us and joe biden is you know he's instinctively a uh, a consensual leader and a sort of you know he, he agrees in working with allies and reaching across the aisle um in the us um and so on and so on so he's he's very you know as different from trump as you could you could get the question is to what extent can he put humpty dumpty back together again um and the answer is you can't you know if you do break an egg you can't ever actually put it back together again um so there are some things that joe biden can do like going back into the paris agreement going back into the who um that are quite straightforward other things will be a lot more difficult so um reviving the iran nuclear deal is a much taller order particularly since the assassination of you know this leading iranian scientist um whether that will sort of make the iranians more or less likely to come back to the table is sort of the subject of much debate but there are there are quite a few things that um that that uh that joe biden will 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 find difficult to reverse tpp that ship has sailed um you know what else is i mean open skies well there's also this question of um of arms treaties with the with russia so there's a big arms treaty um new start that's expiring in february unless it gets extended so i think we can expect to see a flurry of activity from joe biden to try and undo some of the things that trump did um and i think when it comes to us china the the really significant change um is that uh that joe biden will he'll actually still want to 
take quite a tough position on China, but he'll want to do it in conjunction with his allies rather than picking fights with them too. So I don't think we'll see a dramatic shift in stance and sort of, you know, removal of tariffs on uh, on Chinese um, exports to America and so on, um, because Joe Biden, you know, will, will not want to be seen as weak on China. But I think we will see mending of fences with America's allies, Japan, the EU, and so on, to present a more united front. Um, and I think, you know, it's not always appreciated that Trump's diagnosis, which is that China wasn't playing fair and the rest of the world needs to do something about it, that diagnosis is quite widely accepted. Um, the What people disagree with was the way that he set about trying to take China down a peg or two, uh, which was by slapping tariffs on goods that were coming into the US, which of course are paid by US consumers, not by China. Um, um, and so and then he's ended up having to subsidize, you know, Chinese uh, uh, subsidize American farmers and, and so on. So it, it, that is not how you wage an effective um, trade war. And so um, I think that the, the US China tensions are definitely going to continue under Biden. But we should see a more sort of competent management of that um, of that conflict. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to continue. And that means that this difficult situation where both countries and companies find themselves being caught between the two superpowers and being invited to explicitly side with one or the other in many cases, that's going to continue. Uh, so we see that, you know, in cases like, um, you know, 5G and Huawei's equipment. So uh, America putting pressure on its allies not to use Huawei equipment in their 5G networks. And we've seen various sort of elegant fudges as countries have tried not to take sides. Britain sort of fudged it for a bit, but has now conceded that um, it's going to go along with, with that um, and, and ban Huawei equipment from its networks. Um, starting in a couple of years' time, uh, we also see countries um, in places like Southeast Asia or or, or Africa. Um, you know, on the one hand, they would like to have the investment and the trade relations with China, and on the other hand, they would like to have the the security relations relationship and security guarantees from America, and they really don't want to have to have to choose between those two. Um, and so, uh, they are going to try very hard not to. Um, be drawn into one camp or another and that's that's you know australia is a classic example of this as well you know so uh, it's it's economy depends hugely on on china and and we can see the the uh, you know the, the trade spat that that's going on there so that sort of thing is is going to continue one possibility that we have raised is the is the possibility of a grand bargain um and this is that um in order to present a united front particularly when it comes to technology western nations might um put aside some of their own internal differences um and in particular what we see is that in uh, Europe, there's a lot of concern about American tech giants and how they don't pay their taxes and their monopolies and, you know, and so on and so on. So there's sort of um, moves in Europe to try and restrain America's tech giants. Um, and uh, and then in, in the US, um, you know, that's seen as uh, protectionism by um, by the Europeans, who are then also refusing to side with the US when it comes to, you know, taking a stand against China. So the the outlines of a deal are clear, which is that um, the US would sort of slightly tweak its um, privacy laws um, regarding the way that tech giants handle personal data of, of European users. Uh, the Europeans would drop their attempts to uh, to basically impose massive taxes on the, on the US tech giants. And between them, um, the, this this new sort of digital tree, free trade zone would would be created, and um and that would allow Western powers to decide which technologies they were they felt comfortable sharing with China, 
and which Chinese technologies um, they wanted to steer clear of. Um, so in, in areas like, you know, semiconductor manufacturing, that's you know something that where China relies on uh, on technology from outside China to do that. Uh, you know, the indigenous chip making industry in China is uh, is growing fast, and it, but it's still, you know, many years behind uh, the state of the art. And the state of the art, of course, now is in Taiwan uh, at TSMC. But a lot of the equipment that's used is is coming from Germany or from the US or whatever. Um, so there's a possibility of a of a grand bargain there, uh, and that's the sort of initiative I think we can expect to see from from Joe Biden. But of course he's got a very full plate. He's got to deal with you know the, the coronavirus and the recovery before he gets onto this sort of thing. So um, you know I wouldn't expect to see much movement on this in the first half of 2021. Related to that. Um... The WTO, for example, has uh, largely been pronounced dead uh, since Trump's presidency anyway. Is there a chance for a reincarnation for that now, do you think? Or you know, would that even be good for, for Asia or indifferent? Oh, no, I, I think it would. I mean, um, uh, the WTO has been, I would prefer to say it was paralyzed rather than dead. So what Trump did was he refused to appoint new judges to the body within the WTO that handles um, the, you know, the resolution of trade disputes. So that meant that it, the WTO's ability to rule on trade disputes you know, pretty much ground to a halt. Um, and so that's something that Joe Biden could quite easily fix, I think. Um, and you know, Trump was just showing his disdain for globalization in general um, and taking an America first position. So yeah, I think you can. I think you can get the uh, the wheels of the WTO turning again. Um, and uh, and again, you know, there have been these very long running disputes over things like aviation and you know subsidies to Airbus in in Europe and subsidies to Boeing in the US. And th that's the sort of area where you can imagine. Um, a deal being done and uh, Western countries setting aside their differences in order to, pre to present a, a more united front against China. Now, with Trump and his uh, destabilizing tactics, you know, that has largely been uh, pretty good for China in a way because it's made them look like the more stable option. But with Trump now out of the picture, is there still that same scope, do you think, for China to take up that kind of global baton of stability or does a Biden presidency you know, take that away from them? Um, I think it's a mixed picture. So there's there's a lot of debate about whether China would have preferred um, another Trump presidency or or Biden, um, because you know Trump is, um, you know Trump was somebody they felt they he was unpredictable, um, but he wasn't doing a very effective um, <laughs> job of, uh, of of achieving his goals when it came to China. And Biden is much more likely, I think, uh, if you're going to fight a trade war. You need to sort of, you know, use facts and evidence and other things that um, that Donald Trump didn't like. So, um, so I I think um, Biden is sort of more of a known quantity, um, and you know he's had a obviously a long career, and, and the Chinese officials are very familiar with him, um, and he's more likely to be competent. Um, so you've got sort of less chaos, but you've also got a um, possibly a. a, a a more fearsome adversary when it comes to actually waging the trade war. I think the area where China really showed up America um, in the past few years, I mean, we had the famous Davos speech from Xi Jinping about how committed China was to globalization and so on and, and sort of open markets. Um, but, you know, large pinches of salt required with that. But I think the really, really striking 
change has been in climate. Um, and China has made this extraordinary, you know, set this target of, of peaking its emissions in the 2030s and uh, being um, net zero on carbon emissions by 2060. Um, and that is clearly a, you know, a much bolder um, thing than anything. I mean, Donald Trump didn't believe climate change was real. So um, so we're that really has upped the stakes. And uh, we can expect, you know, Joe Biden is talking about carbon neutrality by 2050, I think. Um, and he would like to have a great big green stimulus plan. And we'll see what happens with the with the Senate and whether he's able to do that. I think um, the other area, though, where that pledge from China really makes a difference is that at the COP26 climate conference, which should have happened in late 2020, but will instead be happening in late 2021. Um, the main purpose of that conference is to is to sort of check in on the Paris Agreement. And um, when the countries that signed the Paris Agreement signed it, they said that they would uh, make these pledges called NDCs about how much they would cut their emissions and when. And um, if you look at the pledges that have been made so far, it's nothing like enough to actually meet the terms of the Paris Climate Agreement. So um, what was supposed to be happening at that conference um which will now be happening in a year's time, is that countries are going to say, well, this is how much we're going to you know, do it by. And China has just made this really dramatic you know, pledge and uh, seems to be serious about it. And so I hope that will put pressure on other countries to you know, be similarly ambitious. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the most obvious area where the lack of leadership from the US um, pr provided a vacuum that, uh, that China could, could march into. Now, along the same lines as announcing climate targets, uh, there's also, uh, you know, that's a sustainable development goal. There's also a lot of social stuff that comes under that same sort of umbrella. And in the, the World In publication, uh, number five talks about companies being on the front line. And so I wanted to ask you about, you know, we, we talk about that corporate angle as employees and customers demand that companies take a stand on, on climate or social issues, especially where politicians haven't done enough. Is that something universal, you think? And is that going to apply as much in Asia? Um, well, we have seen, you know, versions of, of that um, all over the world. I mean, um, uh, I mean, it was striking that Black Lives Matter started as a protest movement in, in the US, but it did spread around the world. And we've, we've also seen companies being either um, you know, getting into trouble for taking positions or not taking positions on other issues in other areas. So I'm thinking of, say, Cathay Pacific in, in Hong Kong um, is another example of that. But I think the, the broader issue here is that politicians are um, perceived to not be doing enough in a lot of areas, whether it's racial and social justice um, in the US in particular, whether it's climate change sort of more broadly. And um, people are looking to companies to step up instead. And they're wondering whether they can actually make change you know, more effectively by either supporting companies that are seen to do the right things or boycotting those that aren't. And we have seen you know, particularly during the Trump presidency, when it was clear that the US was not going to do anything on climate. Uh, we've seen lots of uh, US companies step forward and say, okay, well, the government may not be setting goals for carbon neutrality, but we are going to set them. And so, you know, Microsoft said it was going to not just be carbon neutral by, I think, 2030, but, um, but they actually want to be lifetime carbon zero. So in other words, they're going to go and extract the carbon dioxide um, that they've historically put into the atmosphere. They're going to go and take it back back again and bury it underground um uh, which sounds crazy but that's actually what you know more broadly is going to have to be done um 
climate change is the result of the stock, the accumulated stock of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which we've been putting there for basically about 200 years in large quantities, and it's mostly all still there. So um, if we get to net zero emissions, we haven't fixed the problem. We've just stopped it getting any worse, and then we're going to end up in a much warmer world. And so there will then be a big debate about the extent to which we want to draw down that carbon dioxide and um, you know reduce the temperatures back to closer to their post, um, you know, to their their previous level uh, before global warming, warming began. Uh, that will be a subject of much controversy and, and the technology to do that and extract the CO2 is, you know, is barely works now, but I'm sure that will be scaled up. In the, so that's a, that's a big debate for sort of later this century, assuming that we can get on top of, of carbon emissions. Anyway, the, the interesting thing is you're seeing companies stepping forward on this and on other matters. And, um, and you're also seeing this with uh, with U.S. China that the um, that the trade battles and in fact the, the American trade battles in general very often you saw companies being caught in the middle of them. So Donald Trump would you know he wrote all those tweets about Harley Davidson and how you shouldn't buy their motorbikes because they were moving their their factories and they were moving their factories to escape the steel tariffs that Donald Trump had imposed. So um, so when this was pointed out to him, he then said they were really great and that they should um, you know they, you should buy their motorbikes after all or whatever. I mean so the uh, the French wine industry was another one you know the the french government wanted to put a tax on american tech companies so um so america slapped tariffs on french wine um so you know even if you're in an industry that's not you know the usual suspects like arms or uh, oil or aerospace where you're used to having to navigate a complicated geopolitical environment you know french winemakers not so much <laughs> or motorbike manufacturers um there has been this politicization of what were previously straightforward business decisions i mean even things like you know which um online you know uh, video conferencing platform or cloud hosting platform do you use if you use alibaba then the, the people will look askance at that in uh, in the US. They'll say, "Well, can we can we trust that 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 cloud hosting platform?" Um, if you use Huawei Gear in your five G network, you know the, the the Americans will say that can't be that can't be trusted. So um, so we're seeing this politicization of a lot of of business decisions, and it's just made the job of being a CEO um, even more difficult uh, than usual because you have to navigate these you know these treacherous uh, and fast changing political waters. So I think that that's that's why I say, you know, companies really are on the front line here because they're they're having to step up um, for where, where they're facing pressure from consumers and their own employees in many cases um, to take action where politicians are failing to do so. And where politicians are taking action and making life difficult for companies, uh, then then bosses have to deal with that, too. So, yes, it's a it's a difficult time. So technology is one of the themes that comes up a lot in the world in for 2021. And it's certainly something we've already touched on during this conversation. One of the themes you talked about was uh, Europe taxing U.S. companies. Is there going to be, do you think, some growth from tech companies in Asia, particularly in China? And is that going to play into that uh, same tug of war in Europe? Uh, well, we're seeing this already. I mean, um, in many respects. So it used to be the case that if you wanted to see the future, you look to Japan uh, and sort of Japanese teenagers and what they did you know, today, the rest of the world will do tomorrow. And I remember going to Japan in 2001 to see 3G phones. And it wasn't so much that they used 3G. Um, what was really striking about Japanese phones in that period was that they were the first that had um, color screens and cameras and downloadable apps. And this was um, this became widespread in South Korea as well. Um, what's interesting now is the way that um, Chinese uh, business models and, and, and new 
technologies um, are are really shaping the the way that tech develops in the rest of the world. The most obvious example of that, and well, Huawei is one of them. Um, and Huawei is actually, you know, I think it's it's not given the credit it, it deserves in the, in the West as as an innovator um, in mobile network technology in particular. Um, but the most recent example, obviously, has been TikTok. So TikTok is you know, clearly the sort of um, uh, particularly during lockdown it's it's been a big hit around the world and it's been drawn into these political arguments and you know Donald Trump tried to basically take over the the Europe, the um, the uh, American operations of it um another example was that when India and China had their border conflict in which a few soldiers were killed um earlier this year India responded not by sort of escalating things in the military sphere it responded by banning TikTok and a bunch of other Chinese apps from its app stores so you know TikTok literally is a substitute battlefield um but no i think i mean there are lots of there are lots of business models where china has been a pioneer because you've got an entire generation of people whose you know use of the internet has entirely been based around smartphones they're willing to try new things um and so that has led to this incredibly fertile um ecosystem and things like you know dockless bike sharing was a that's a chinese business model and and the dockless scooters and so on you see those all over the world now so um so yes there's definitely opportunities and as someone who's sort of looking for um for the next trends you know china is the place that, that you look to look to now and i i think that's you know, that's definitely something keeping an eye on worth keeping an eye on um i think though for 2021 the the real question is given the extent to which um all of these new technological behaviors were adopted during the pandemic so obviously remote working is a big one um more shopping online uh more medical consultations online and obviously more learning online and that was a very you know very mixed picture some schools in some countries were better set up for that than others and if you haven't got a computer um that you've got access to all day and a good internet connection then you know going to school online just doesn't work um so that's been you know that's that's actually heightened inequality um in in some respects but what it has done is it's shown that where it works it it really can work um and so th the question for 2021 is to what extent did these new behaviors that have been adopted very widely in the past few months to what extent do they stick after the pandemic has receded um you know do we still go on working from home do we still go on seeing our doctor remotely and so on and the answer is well um obviously we're not going to go back to the way things were before that world is gone we're not going back to the pre-pandemic world but nor are we going to go on doing all of the things that we've been doing because we can't leave the house um so the answer is going to be that we're going to end up somewhere in between and exactly where we end up in between is going to vary enormously by industry and by country um so you know we can see that for example finance and tech firms in western countries are much more relaxed about people working from home now uh, they've done the experiment they can see that it doesn't impact productivity in fact it may even improve productivity so in future we can expect more of those workers to spend more of their time working from home um, not doesn't mean offices are dead it doesn't mean people won't go to the office at all but i mean i think bill gates this week he said that he expects business travel to fall by 50 percent and the number of days that people work from home to increase by 30 percent and that seems reasonable to me um if you look at other parts of the world and other industries though it's a very different picture so a survey i saw found that 20 percent of uh, bosses in um, in Britain and Germany were happy for their employees to work more from home if they were if they were able to do so and it was only four percent of bosses in China and you know famously people say that in Japan you have the sort of culture of presenteeism where you need to be in the office before your your boss gets in and you can't leave until your boss leaves and th this sort of thing so there are clearly these differences that will mean that the amount to which these changes um, stick 
uh, varies enormously. Another example that I like is um, e-commerce in Italy. So Italy was historically a country that did not do a lot of shopping online. And um, and clearly lots of people had to learn to shop online for the first time during 2020. Um, and so there have been you know stories of Italian grannies getting hooked on Amazon and realizing they can order anything they like through their through their computers or whatever. Um, are they going to go on doing that? Well, some of them will. Some of them will go on doing some of their shopping online. Um, and so, you know, there's been a leap forward there. Uh, various organisations have tried to quantify it. I think McKinsey said there's been a five-year leap forward in sort of um, consumer and company adoption of digital technology. Uh, the retail consortium Netcom in Italy said that the pandemic has been a 10-year uh, digital leap and so on and so on. So in a sense, we're kind of emerging from 2020. And as we see the light at the end of the tunnel with, with vaccines sort of in the next few months the world we're going to come out into is not so much the world of 2021 it's in some ways going to be the world of 2025 or 2030 or, or 2030 um, more people are going to be using technology uh, next year to an extent that they weren't predicted to be for for many more years and so this is a process i've been calling tech acceleration um, and one of the big challenges for companies next year is adapting to this new normal because you're going to see these changes in patterns of demand uh, between industries between countries um, and you're going to have to respond to that and that means that monitoring what's going on uh, how your customers are using your your products and services what's happening in your supply chain uh, becomes more important than ever because that's the only way that uh, companies can stay on top of that and and respond um, so yes it's going to be a, a bumpy transition and clearly you know some companies aren't going to survive we're seeing uh, high street retailers going go bust in in europe for example um, so yes that 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 to me is the kind of one of the most interesting things next year looking beyond the vaccines and so on uh, which is how much of these new behaviors will stick well i'm i'm really happy to learn that we're going to be walking out of this uh, current covid era into uh, a much further time in the future because i've been waiting for flying cars and i'm still hoping that those are going to come along well, again, if, and if they if they appear anywhere, it will be China first. I mean, Ehang, you know, there are some Chinese companies that are absolutely at the forefront of that. Um, so yes, if if you if you have Chinese, if you have a if you want to see flying cars, I would go to China because <laughs> that's where they'll that's where they'll show up first. And I think you'll probably see self driving cars in in volume in China before you see them anywhere else. Um, and again, it's you know in that case, I mean, that's a field that I I follow quite closely. Um, China may not have the best technology for that, but it's not just a tech technology problem. China has um, you know, a form of government that makes it possible for you to clear uh, or designate part of a city to be for use by autonomous vehicles only. Uh, you can ban pedestrians, you can ban human driven vehicles. That makes the problem and you can build the infrastructure you need to guide the vehicles. That makes the problem of having cars drive themselves much easier to solve. Um, and so, you know, many people have said that they expect, you know, American tech companies to solve the problem, but they expect to see mass deployment um, in China you know, more more than anywhere else, um, particularly because of these you know, differences in the political environment that make it easier to uh, to make these sorts of large scale changes. Oh, fantastic! Thank you, Tom. I think we're out of time for this, but it was really great to have you here and to talk about what's going to be ahead for us in the world in twenty twenty one. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Great. Thanks again for your time. And thank you as well to our listeners for spending the time with us. The World In can be found online at economist.com and in a special separate publication if you are a subscriber. Please refer to our show notes for the relevant links. 
And if you're interested about the flying cars that Tom mentioned at the end, check out the EIU's China Icebergs report from 2019, where we cover Ehang as an example of how China may be changing the world. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email to asiaperspectives at economist.com. Thank you very much.